from today, we started a series of messages on the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, which contains the intercessory prayer of our Lord. We've tried to distinguish time after time that we must not think of this as the model prayer. The model prayer was given by our Lord to his disciples, and they did the praying of it. But the 17th chapter of John is a prayer which Christ prayed, and immediately after that, he went into Gethsemane, and from Gethsemane, he went to Calvary. We want to look at John 17 again today. If you have your Bibles, I hope you will follow along with the scripture reading. And if I go a little fast on some areas, uh, just jot the references down if you cannot turn to them that quickly. Sometimes I slow down a little bit because two pages stick together. I'm not as quick as I used to be on that. But anyway, we're here to learn from the scriptures what is involved in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I want us to combine series four, which is today, with series five, which would be next Sunday, and combine those two and I'm doing that because they both speak of the glory of God. The glory of God. So let's look and listen to the reading of verses 4 and 5 of John chapter number 17. The Lord Jesus is praying. He's not teaching his disciples how to pray. He's praying. And he says this, I have glorified thee. On the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I'm combining these two verses because, as I said, they deal with the subject of the glory of God. Notice in verse number 4, Christ says, I have glorified thee. Notice he says in verse 5, glorify thou me. Now you compare that with verse 1 and you find those two very important things. In verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Here they are. Glorify thy son that thy Son also may glorify thee. There are two terms used in the opening verses of this great prayer of intercession, which makes it unique and it also makes it distinct. Those two words are glorify. The other word is glory. Glorify. And glory. What do those two terms mean? Well, we sing about them. Down at the cross, where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing for sin, and from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. What does that mean? Glory to His name. I read over in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses was having a conversation with the God of the Bible, and he made a request of the Lord. He said, Lord, show me thy glory. Show me. I want to see what glory means. Show me thy glory. Now in John 1, 4, the Word was, pardon me, one fourteen. the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is glory? Glorify is used twice in John 17.1. It is used once in John 17, 4. It is used again once in John 17, verse 5. That's glorify. 
glorify. Glory is used once in John chapter 17, verse 5. Glorify me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Glory is the Greek word doxa. D-O-X-A from which we get our word doxology. I thumbed over to Mr. Webster this morning to see what he had to say about it, knowing full well that the Word of God takes precedence over Mr. Webster and any other human being. But Webster says that doxology means to give praise. To give praise. We sing about it. The doxology in our Baptist hymnal is hymn 253. Don't turn to it. I've lost my music director. All right. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above. You heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let me give you a basic meaning of glory itself. It deals with the nature and the acts of God as He manifests Himself, revealing His splendor, His majesty, His attributes, and His power. God showing Himself in such a way that we see His attributes and His power and His splendor and His marvelous mercy. That reference I made about Moses' request, it's worth turning to in Exodus chapter 33. And you might wish to do that in Exodus chapter number 33. The request again, you find it in verses 18 and 19 of Exodus chapter number 33. And he said, that is, Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, we find in chapter 34 of Exodus, verses 6 through 8, God is showing Moses about his glory. The Bible says in verse 6 of chapter 34 of Exodus, the Lord passed by before him. Now notice that's capital L-O-R-D. The Lord God Jehovah passed by Before Moses. And the Lord proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and to the fourth generation. And what did this cause Moses to do? Moses made haste to bow his head toward earth and he worshipped. Moses began to worship the glory of God. The glory of God. It's a marvelous thing. Glorify is a different word. Basically carries some of the same meaning. Glorify is the Greek word doxaazo. Doxaazo. And it has this same idea. When spoken of Christ, it has to do with the act of God in Him. That is, when you look at Christ, you see God. The glory of God. He's glorified. It means the innate glory of Christ is brought to light 
or made manifest. Looking upon the glorified Christ, one would see more than Jesus of Nazareth, but rather they would see Almighty God robed in flesh to glorify. This happened to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you recall? He took with him Peter, James, and John and went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and all of a sudden, the Bible says in Matthew 17, 2, Christ was transfigured before them. Christ was transfigured before them. Again, the Greek word there is metamorphuo. Metamorphuo, from which we get our word metamorphosis, in which a change of appearance took place before their very eyes. He glistened, that is, the Lord began to glisten as they watched him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he glistened in the presence of the disciples. That's one of the reasons why Peter wanted to build three tabernacles and stay on the mountaintop. He had never seen anything like this before in his life. The glory of God began to come through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God began to come through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing selfish about our Lord's prayer for such glory. He has asked to be glorified so that he might glorify the Father. For if the Son is glorified, it only means that the Father will be seen in him. That when you look at Jesus Christ, you do not look at a little tiny baby in a Bethlehem manger. You look at God Almighty, incarnate, in flesh, so men could see the glory of God. Look at verse number 4 of our text. John chapter 17, verse number 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. That's a great statement. It is followed by an equally great statement. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now the Father has been glorified by his Son. When Jesus Christ was on this earth, he continually glorified the Father. How did the Son do this? How did Christ glorify the Father while he was on this earth? Several ways. Number one, he did it in his person by in his person, by who he was. Actually, personally, he did it that way. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the scripture says, who, speaking of Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. If you ever wondered what God looks at, looks like, look at Christ. Look at Christ. And he upholds all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And the Lord Jesus did that in his person when he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. The Father has been glorified by his Son. How? Number one, in his person. Number two, in his miracles. When Christ would perform a miracle, it reflected the power of his heavenly Father. Good place to start on that is Matthew chapter 9. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. This is one incident in the ministry of Christ. He entered into a ship, passed over, came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now notice, 
that does not reflect or point to the power that the Pope of Rome has. You're welcome. He does not have the power to forgive sin. He cannot even forgive his own sin, much less anybody else's sin. But Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sin. Certain of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemeth. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think you evil in your hearts? For whether is it easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But listen carefully to verse 8. But when the multitude saw it, what did they do? They marveled and glorified God. Jesus Christ glorified the Father while he was on this earth, in his person and also in miracles. Another way he magnified the glory of God is in his words, the things that he spoke. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, he's talking to his Father, there, just as he's talking to the Father in John 17. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, giving God the Father the glory for it. You enjoy doing this, Father, and it's good in your sight. All things are delivered unto me, Christ is speaking, as the Son of God. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So even in his person, in his miracles, and in his words, he was constantly giving praise and glory to God the Father. The Father has been glorified by his Son, Again, another way is not only by his person, miracles, and works, but by his holy life. The holy life of the Lord Jesus brought honor and glory to God. Just, and this is a poor illustration, just like a son can bring honor to his father, his earthly father, or he can bring shame to his earthly father by what he does. Christ always brought glory to God the Father. In his holy life. The Bible says in John 1.14. The word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. And other places but one in particular. Matthew 3.17. The father answered from heaven and said. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, congregation, let's face facts. There's some times when God just really not too well pleased with Dan Cozart. But don't feel too cocky and secure back there on the pew. There's some times God doesn't feel too pleased about you either, my dear friend by the way we talk, by the way we... But there never was a time except when Christ became sin for us on the cross that the Father wasn't so proud of His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I it brought glory. You know, the obedience of a son brings glory to his daddy. And the disobedience of a son brings sorrow To the dad. And then the father has been glorified by his son. 
in his person, in his miracles, in his words, by his holy life, but also by the victory over Satan. The devil never defeated the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came into contact with him, he stood it so long and then the devil had to leave. But in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, it says this, For as much then as the children are partners of flesh and blood, he, Christ, also himself, likewise, took part of the same. Jesus Christ took part. He became flesh and blood. Why did he do that? That through death, he would not die until he became incarnate. The body has to die. And when he became incarnate, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. He was called Lucifer in the book of Ezekiel, and God kicked him out of heaven. And while he's on this earth, he's walking about seeking whom he may devour, but there's somebody that can handle the devil And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings honor and glory to the Father. And so in that 17th of John, in verse number 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. And that's what Christ spent his time doing while walking this earth. He was glorifying the Father who had sent him. And in addition to that, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do Now, what was this work? That when Jesus Christ came into this world, He came to do a job. He came to do an assignment, to do a work to please the Father. And I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. This work was not given to Him when He was born. This work was given to Him Before he was born. Listen to that carefully. Before the worlds were created, the Father gave the Son a work to do and sent him into this world to do it. And he did it. I have finished the work which he gave me to do. One way he did that is through his obedience. Jesus Christ was always obedient to the Father who sent him. And he showed that obedience. Many times children have a way of showing disobedience. We'll overlook that. But when they become adults, they're still showing disobedience to their parents. But not one time did Jesus disobey his Father. The son's foremost desire was to please the Father by obedience. He said, I finished that work. I finished it. When he entered into this world as a tiny baby, he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. When he was 12 years of age, he said, Know you not that I must be about my father's business. I'm not here in Palestine to enjoy the scenery. I've come to do what God the Father wants me to do. Luke chapter 2 verse 49. During his ministry, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's John 4, verse number 34. Here he anticipates his cry from the cross by saying in John 19, 30, it is finished. Now, please give me a bit of latitude here. This does not mean that he had completed doing everything the Father sent him to do, but he meant that it was being finished. You see, he's got to die after he said that. He's got to be buried after he said that. He's got to come forth from the dead after he said that. He's got to be ascended after he said that. But in the speaking of it this way, it is finished. It's done. An Italian mob movie. Every once in a while, I need something to wake me up. 
if I can tune into a good old Italian mob movie, uh, whenever a contract was given to a hitman, he would say, it's done. Well, no, it wasn't done. But it was done. What did that mean? It's as good as it's already happened. And everything that Christ did was to please the Father. His foremost desire was to please his Father by obedience. He says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Christ finished something in his life. Have you ever tried to do something and you just never got around to finishing it? And then maybe a year later you look at it and say, well, you know, I thought about that. I better get back and do some more work on it. No, he finished it. He finished it. He finished something in his life. What did he finish? It's a Bible study this morning. It's a Bible study we're having about the intercessory prayer that Jesus Christ prayed in John 17. He finished something in his life. It was to qualify as the lamb worthy of sacrifice. Israel must have a lamb that will represent the sins of the people on Passover day so that the priest could go into the Holy of Holies, take the blood, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and it act to postpone the wrath of God for another 365 days. One thing Jesus Christ did, something he finished in his life, it was to qualify as the lamb worthy of sacrifice. In the book of Exodus chapter 12, you have to get that information. In Exodus chapter 12 verses 3 and 5, introducing the Passover of the Jews. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to him every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Not a goat, but a lamb. And in verse number five, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out, from the sheep or from the goats. Notice the explanation here that would qualify this lamb. First of all, the lamb must be without blemish. Now really, the Lord Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry when it was interrupted by a man whose name was John the Baptist. And how did John the Baptist, and what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was without blemish. If the lamb had any type of disease, any defect whatsoever, that lamb could not be used as a sacrifice for sin. And it points to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If there was any sin ever in his life, he could never have been the lamb to take away the sin of the world. Without blemish. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 5, He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. There never was any sin in Him, and there is no sin in Him today, and there never will be any sin in Him. He's the Lamb without blemish. And it had to be a male. I'm sorry, ladies. God didn't love the world so much he sent a female. He sent his son, his son, a male sheep out of the flock. Must be selected. And then take it out. Separate him from the rest of the sheep. Jesus Christ is not just one of the boys down the street we have fellowship with. He's Christ. He's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. In John, Hebrews seven twenty six, For such an high priest became he for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. This Christ that we worship even today, without blemish, a male, and taking it out, separating him. Jesus Christ kept the law of God perfectly. By the way, if you're trying to attain righteousness by keeping the law, how are you doing? How are you getting along with that? 
When's the last time you read the law that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai? Jesus Christ is the only person who ever kept the law of God perfectly. And he was righteous for his being perfect in keeping the law. But he was also righteous because he is righteousness in his character. Christ not only finished something in his life. He finished something in his death. Well, it raises a question. What did he finish in his death? Going back to Exodus chapter 12, picking up with verse number 6. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Christ was not and did not die in the morning. He died in the afternoon. He died in the evening. They shall take of the blood, strike it on the two posts, on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire. Christ said on the cross, I thirst! Because he was, due, he was, he was experiencing our punishment for the sins of his elect as he died on the cross. And then it says in verse number 11, pardon me, 10, you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. Jesus Christ finished something in his death. What did he finish in his death? Now stay with me on this, folk. Number one, he finished postponing judgment by obtaining righteousness. He finished postponing judgment by obtaining righteousness. When that priest in the Old Testament went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood, he knew that it had to be done again in 365 days. It never was able to take away sin It was a ritual, and the people looked forward to it every year at this time, called it the Day of Atonement. And they did no work, and they did the best they could in following the prescription that God laid down so the priest could go in and postpone the judgment of God on them for another 365 days. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ finished postponing judgment by obtaining our redemption in dying on the cross. They say, well, does the Bible say anything like that? I'm so glad you asked. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 9, verse number 12. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse number 12. But Christ, he's been talking about these earthly priests. They just had to keep going back again and again and again, postponing God's wrath. But Christ stopped that, you see. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Mm. Mm. He finished postponing judgment by obtaining our redemption, which he did for us. Second of all, he finished the Old Testament offering by his one offering. In the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verses 11 through 14, Every priest standeth daily ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. Encircle that, it's plural. Sacrifice, no. Sacrifices over and over again, which could never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are 
sanctified. Aren't you glad he'll never have to go to Calvary again? One time, one time, he finished it. He finished the Old Testament offering by offering his body one time. In doing that, let me quickly hasten, he finished the Old Testament priesthood. He finished the Old Testament priesthood. Again in Hebrews chapter 10, 12, I'll not read it again the second time, but this is where you find it. And he showed it by the veil being split in the temple from top to bottom. Up until that time, only the high priest could go behind the veil. But now the veil is split and the economy is being changed. No more of that Old Testament priesthood. No more of that you can do this and you can't do that and you've got to do this and you've got to do penance and all that. That's junk! It's junk! Christ did away with it. So don't practice it, all right? He finished the Old Testament priesthood. Well, where does that bring us? It brings us quickly. (laughs) I don't have much time left. To verse number 5. told you we're going to unite verse 4 and verse number 5. What does verse 5 say? And now, O Father, because I've done this, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. After the resurrection, Christ remained on this earth 40 days making personal decisions, personal appearances. He then ascended into heaven and sat down at the Father's right hand to be our priest. That's what John 17 is all about. It gives us a picture of his priestly work for the past 2,000 years. He is there to present his righteousness to the Father on our behalf. Were he to do it just for one believer only, the work would be tremendous. But to continually do it with all of the elect for the past 2,000 years is mind boggling. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? Not just doing it for one or two prize picks out of the litter, my dear friend. Uh, he does it for all of the elect. And you have an advocate with the Father today, Jesus Christ, the righteous in heaven, and he's doing there what he did on earth in John chapter number 17, praying for you and on behalf of you to the Father in heaven. Last week I mentioned that in the first section of this prayer, which covers verses 1 through 8, Christ prays for himself. Verses 1 through 8 of John 17, that's the first division. Christ is praying for himself. He asked the Father, well, he requested only two things for himself. Number one, in verse 1, he asked to be glorified that he might glorify the Father. Is not that so? And the second thing he asked, in verse number 5, he asked to be glorified by returning the glory of his pre-existent state. That's really not the best word. It's an English word. But you have to be careful when you talk about the pre-existence of Christ. Technically what you're saying is he didn't exist until he was a baby in a Bethlehem manger. So it would be better to say the pre-incarnate Christ. Before he became flesh, Jesus Christ lived and was with the Father in heaven. I'll try to run through this quickly. Number one, Jesus dwelt in a pre-incarnate state of glory with the Father. Before Bethlehem, before the angels sing praise that God has sent His Son, before any of that, Christ dwelt in a pre-existent or a pre-incarnate state of glory with the Father. It's hard for us sometimes to grasp the fullness of a statement like that. That's a tremendous statement. 
that he's not someone who began. He's someone who's always here. Always. John eight fifty eight. you remember he said to the Pharisees, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Boy, they scratched their head on that one. How in the world? Abraham's thousands of years older than Jesus. Now, Jesus was born 30 years ago here in the Bethlehem manger scene. How could he say he's older than Abraham? Because he was with Abraham. How could he be with Abraham in his pre-incarnate state? John 16, 28, I came forth from the Father, that's what Christ said, and I'm coming to the world. I leave the world and go to my Father. That's a quick picture, isn't it? I came from the Father. When I get through down here, I'm going back to the Father. There was an existence there of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 1.8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. Oh, I have to take this one in. <clears throat> but unto the Son, God is speaking to the Son here. Hebrews 1.8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of thy kingdom. Now tighten your seatbelt. The Father calls His Son God. You don't find that in many places in the Bible. Better When you get a hold of it, underline it. That's so important. Under the Son, He saith, Thy throne, O God. Speaking from the Father to the Son, O God, forever and ever. Jesus set his glory aside, his pre-incarnate glory aside, when he came to this earth as a man. It's called his humiliation. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, when was he rich? Certainly one not after his birth. He said, The Son of Man hath nowhere to even lay his head. Something happened. He was rich, however, before he came to this earth. Do you see that? Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Philippians 2, 7, He made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. But he was alive before that happened. He's always been alive. He's the living Son of God. Jesus knew he would return to his Father and be restored to his former glory. He knew that. Speaks of his glorification. In John seven thirty three, Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while I'm with you, and then I'm going to go back to him that sent me. John fourteen twenty eight. You've heard now how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice. Because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. God sent the Son into the world, and the Son went back to the Father who sent him. Hmm? That okay? Well, it's got to be okay. That's scripture. I will close. Give me a minute. What kind of glory did Jesus Christ have with the Father before the world began? I cannot tell you by experience, I wasn't there. And you weren't there. If you search your Bible, you'll find the truth there. What kind of glory did Jesus Christ have with the Father before the world ever began? First of all, eternal sonship must be established. I am at a loss to try and tell you a certain time, a certain hour, a certain moment when this transaction took place that Jesus Christ is no longer the pre-existent God, but He actually becomes the Son of God in an arrangement. Now that's best I can do. You can chew on it all day, and if you can help me out with this, you let me know. Eternal sonship must be established. 
I pastored a church here in Tyler, Texas for four years, and there was a member in that church who did not believe in the Trinity, did not believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. He was a Jesus-only man. That's a bunch of junk. The eternal trinity demands it. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. God, and there was no human being that had been made. God said, let us. Huh? Who in the world was God the Father talking to? He's talking to his son. Talking to the Holy Spirit. The three in one. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You go to the 11th chapter of Genesis and the people who tried to build a a tower that would reach unto heaven, God said, let us go down and destroy them. Who's the us there? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Preacher, you say that most religions are bad? Yeah, you're catching on. You're getting it now. Unless you go by the word of God, you're all washed up. The eternal trinity demands it. Number two, watch this one. The everlasting Father, quote unquote, demands it. Now listen carefully. I know I've kept you a long time. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. You already know that's Old Testament. Good. Do you know what it says? God is giving the sign of the coming Messiah and he says for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You say, well, I I believe that. That's good. What about the rest of it? Well, what's the rest of it? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is to be called the everlasting Father. When you and I get to heaven, we're not going to have two fathers up there. Father Jehovah and Father Jesus. No, Jesus Christ is all the God you'll know in heaven. He's the only God you'll ever want to know in heaven. In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He will be called the everlasting Father. If that be not so, step a little while tonight and figure that one out. And then the eternal covenant of grace demands it. In John 17 verse 2, Is thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Before Christ came to this earth, God, the Father, gave the Son His elect that were to be saved. It's called the eternal covenant of God's grace. Christ is to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. By the way, let me ask a question. When did the Father give these to the Son? Did he give them to him in time when they trusted Christ and made their decision? Or did he give them in eternity before they ever trusted? You ever get a hold of that? I tell you what, you stop fussing at Calvinist. Yeah. You ever get a hold, really get a hold of that? That my dear friends, you were not saved because of something you did You're saved because God chose you before the foundation of the world. You say, well, what about all these other people? He didn't choose them. Well, I don't know if I can take that or not. I know it's a little thick. I understand that. Let me give you one other thing. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. I always like this. Daniel 3, 25. Nebuchadnezzar had commanded that those who disrespected him were to be thrown into a furnace of fire. And there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were three Jews, and they said, nothing doing, we're not going to do that. We're not going to bend, we're not going to bow, we're not going to break. And Nebuchadnezzar said, chunk them into the fire. 
And once they were thrown into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar looked over into that furnace. He said, whoop, we made a mistake. We cast three men into the fire, but I see a fourth man down there. And the fourth man is like the Son of God. If he didn't exist in the Old Testament, who was he looking at? That pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. The eternal glory the Son had with the Father was gloriously perfect. I'm sorry, maybe my clock's slow. I got three minutes. In the book of Proverbs, this is the last one, please. Proverbs 8. Turn over there, would you please? Proverbs 8. You say, well, now that's Old Testament. Yes, sir, it's the Old Testament. And Christ is presented in Proverbs 8, beginning with verse 32. 22, pardon me. The Lord possessed me, Christ is speaking, the Father. The Father possessed me in the beginning of His ways before His works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains of abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was, I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, Christ said, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandments, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. And notice that part is italicized. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So you find in verse number 1 of John 17, Christ prays to be glorified on this earth. Happens today when elect people are safely brought into the fold through the preaching and the ministry of the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And verse number 2, he prays to be glorified in heaven. And I believe with all of my heart that Christ is being glorified today as we're in this auditorium preaching. There are four living creatures up there. So where'd you get that from? Book Revelation. It's a good book. I'll spend a little time in Revelation. John was caught up from the earth to heaven. First thing he saw was Christ sitting on a throne and then he noticed four living creatures. And they had but one message. Praise God for who he is. He liveth forever and ever and ever. And we weren't even born when that happened. When God put that program in, we were not even born. This is the 17th chapter of the book of John. I don't think we're quite through with it yet. Please be patient with your pastor as we wade through this. Let's stand please for prayer.